The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Mr. Shriram Madhusudanan. He is the Director of Corporate Accountability International's Value the Meal Campaign. He works with parents, educators, health professionals, and activists to challenge the fast food industry's predatory marketing to children and its devastating impact on communities across the country. He was recently selected as a 2016 Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Culture of Health leader to create collaborative solutions that address health inequities. We had the opportunity to work together on a toxic tater campaign. It was part of the Pesticide Action Network's campaign and webinar, and I was so impressed with his mission for compassion in the food system that I wanted him to be my guest. So welcome, Sharam. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much, Melinda. I'm so glad to be on the show. I always like to start by asking my guests how they got to where they are. So how is it that you found a place with Corporate Accountability International? That is a great question. I really got started in this work when I was a college student at the University of South Florida, and I was really just reading the school newspaper, the USF Oracle, regularly. And, and as I was doing that reading pretty late into into my time in college was just increasingly seeing the connections between devastating climate change that was happening year after year at aggressive and always quickening pace, as well as its connection to something so intimate as our food, the thing that we rely on for nutrition and, and our entire food system. And I think that for me, when I saw the interrelation, particularly between the current food system, its incredible dependency, fossil fuels and greenhouse gas emissions, let alone the incredible uh, contributions to greenhouse gas emissions as a result of animal agriculture, I just knew that I, I had to get into that work and I had to do something about it. And through a number of different meanderings, including working on environmental campaigns, Across the country, I ultimately found myself um, here at Corporate Accountability International just as we were a few years into launching our Value the Meal campaign. And one of the things that was completely compelling for me was the analysis here that McDonald's and the fast food industry has played an incredible and really, in many ways, unparalleled role in shaping the demand of industrial agriculture and the, the current food system that we see today, They're certainly contributing to a number of issues, climate change one among them, but ones that are really devastating the environment and children's health as well. Mm-hmm. And Corporate Accountability International is based in Boston. Are there offices elsewhere in the country and the world? There are, there are. We have an office in Bogota, Colombia. That's the Center for our Latin America office down there as well. 
as a few staff working remotely across the country. I see. What were you studying in particular at the University of South Florida? Well, I was studying international studies and economics there. Mm -hmm. And so are you able to apply your degree to the work that you're doing now, and how does that connect? Oh, absolutely. I like to think that in a lot of ways what I learned from my time in college and and certainly through my majoring in international studies was just the incredible urgency of uh, global issues at this time. And I, I bring that to the work that I do every day. You know, I'd like to think that the the mantra kind of think global, act local is central to what I do here at, at Corporate Accountability International. But in a lot of ways, we both think global and, and act global as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of our campaigns really have this undercurrent of knowing that we, as primarily U.S.-based organization and uh, with a membership also primarily based in the United States, have an incredible power to challenge some of the most powerful global corporations, many of which, you know, like McDonald's, which I, I spend much of my time challenging through our Value the Meal campaign, are based here. But at the same time, we know that the longstanding impact of our work from our very first campaigns with the Nestle boycott really do need to have international application. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, I mean that we really do need to make sure that when we're able to stop life-threatening actions of global corporations, that we're able to ensure that those protections are in effect not just here in the U.S. or in the global north, but around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, when I was doing my research prior to interviewing you, and I went to the website of Corporate Accountability International, I had this aha moment because I realized, oh, that's right, I had one of those boycott Nestle bumper stickers or posters in my office in the early 1980s on a bulletin board because of Nestle's brazen actions, really, to feed children formula as opposed to breast milk, knowing how beneficial breast milk was to the infant. So corporate accountability goes back a long time, 35 years. Is that right? Over 35 years. Over 30, yes, almost 40 years. We're approaching our 40th anniversary. Wow. So the first successful global boycott that Corporate Accountability International did was the infant formula campaign. Are there any other campaigns that you want to talk a little bit about before we jump into Value the Meal? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say, first of all, it's so great to meet a former Nestle boycott. (laughs) Right. You know, many of our members as well. And, you know, we really do have our roots in the launch of, of that campaign. And One of the joys I have working at this organization, we are a member-powered organization, is uh, speaking with members who make this work possible, and so many of them have stories from the Nestle boycott or the nuclear weapon makers campaign in the 1980s and, and the GE boycott. You know, the campaign I'd really like to touch on before we jump a little bit more into Value the Meal, because it has so many echoes of it in the current work that I do on Value the Meal, and challenging the fast food industry, though, is our work challenging big tobacco. And that work, you know, was really launched in 1993 when, if 
your listeners might remember that famous picture of the seven dwarves, the executives of the major tobacco corporations came to testify before Congress and ultimately all lied brazenly to our uh, public officials and to the public as a whole about their knowledge and about the um, harmful effects of uh, tobacco and cigarettes. And at that point, too, our role really in that movement was, much as it is now with Value the Meal, was the direct challenge to corporations such as RJR Nabisco and Philip Morris, uh, at the time Philip Morris Altria, whose tobacco marketing icons like Joe Camel and the Marlboro Men were really central tactics and strategies by these corporations and by the industry to market to children and to get them hooked on a deadly product at a young age in order to make them into customers for life. And so those were incredibly successful campaigns. Our campaigning ultimately led to the retirement of those marketing icons in the U.S. as well as laid the foundation for one of our most successful campaign victories and organizational victories to date our work to with allies across the world to secure a powerful precedent-setting public health and corporate accountability treaty in the Global Tobacco Treaty that has really uh, ensured safeguards, including protecting from the tobacco industry's marketing in the close to 180 countries who have ratified it so far. It's actually the World Health Organization's one of its most widely ratified treaties. And one of the, when I say corporate accountability treaty there too, one of the central elements of it that makes it so powerful is a piece of it called Article 5.3 that really ensures that the tobacco industry is kept an arm's length away from public health policy making because of its fundamental conflict of interest with public health. Now, to you and I, that may seem like common sense, but actually for years, that was a very hard-fought, those few words in the in the treaty was a very hard-fought piece of the treaty that was so necessary to ensure that it would have the power to truly protect people across the world from the ravages and the abuses of the tobacco industry. That is fascinating, and I can see the parallels between the tobacco work and the fast food industry. And I wonder, you were talking about how this was a successful campaign, and the first question that came to my mind was, what do you think were your successful strategies in moving this tobacco prevention, really, this prevention movement along so that it became effective? Yeah, I mean, for us, really, our critical effectiveness and successes in the work on challenging big tobacco was making sure that we were directly bringing, so to say, the the pressure right to the tobacco industry and to its top executives and decision makers, something that we did and continue to do throughout our Challenge Big Tobacco campaign. And so just to give an example of that, we every year still to this day attend the annual shareholder meeting of Philip Morris International. They are now based, and and, well, I, I don't know if they're based there, but they run their meetings out of New York City. And we make sure that we show up at 
you know, this meeting, which is one of their most important meetings where all of their important audiences are listening, their investors, the media, and more. And, and we really cut through the spin of the industry who would like nothing more than to talk about how it is returning value to shareholders and, and more and more, but nothing to the, the real true human impact of its practices on people's lives around the world, the real stories of people who are our family and have lost loved ones to the scourge of tobacco-related diseases, and even across the world to its completely shameless flouting of international law. You know, one of the recent victories, too, just to mention this, was a few years ago, Philip Morris International sued Uruguay for having the gall to implement public health law that would be protecting its people. And recently, in spite of the intimidation and the litigation by the industry, you know, taking the very small country of Uruguay to court, the people of Uruguay and the government of that country won that case. But, you know, making sure that we're exposing that kind of really abusive interference and practice at these annual shareholders meetings is a big part of the effective strategies that really do make sure that we, in the end, succeed in these campaigns. Mm, That's very interesting. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Mr. Sriram Madhusudanan. He is the Director of Corporate Accountability International's Value the Meal campaign. And we should probably jump into that campaign so that we have time to talk about those parallels between tobacco and big food, as we call it. It's interesting that of all the big food conglomerates out there, and there are many, that Corporate Accountability International has focused really solely on Ronald McDonald and McDonald's overall in terms of some of their agricultural practices and how they target children in particular. Why did you choose McDonald's? That's a great question, Melinda, and it's one that I I love to answer. You know, McDonald's really is one of the most powerful entities in our food system, and that analysis of its power over really almost everyday decisions about how food is made in our world today was some of the fundamental lines that brought us to focus on them as you know really the primary corporation to engage and to move. So first and foremost, McDonald's is really one of the leading purchasers, if not a leading purchaser, of a whole range of staple products, beef, chicken, pork, lettuce, tomatoes, even apples. And so when you think about the incredible amount of power that comes with that and the relationships that McDonald's has with all of the other really big names, so to say, uh, the, the huge corporations that are fundamentally controlling so many of the decisions of our food and how it's made. This corporation has, more than any other, really set a demand throughout our food system that has driven it towards industrial monocrop agriculture. And at the same time, one of the things that really brought us to at the same time focus on McDonald's was that its marketing to children 
much like big tobacco before it, was fundamentally exploiting a inherent vulnerability in children and inability to see that persuasive intent in advertising. And they were exploiting that vulnerability to create potentially lifelong customers at a young age. Mm-hmm. And it's so sad, you know, when I drive through some of these rural communities in the Midwest, the McDonald's is very prevalent, and it's seen as a treat. You know, going out, it's considered to be affordable because of so many externalized costs associated with that industrial food system. And then there's the opportunities for schools to partake in McTeacher nights where the teachers on an off day for McDonald's will go into the facility and serve food, and the children at school are encouraged to attend, And then schools get a very small percentage of total sales, but the schools are so desperate for that money that they welcome these partnerships. And it's quite a tangled web, isn't it? Absolutely. And I'm so glad you bring up the instance of McTeacher's Nights in particular. The kinds of ways in which McDonald's has really been exploiting children and targeting children in schools in order to market its brand are really quite egregious and and insidious. And and this was something that we saw early on as we were looking into and developing the idea of of this campaign of of Value the Meal and and honing its focus on McDonald's. And we saw that in so many ways from McTeacher's Nights to Ronald McDonald going into schools to teach children about reading or physical activity, to even just the very act of citing stores near Mm. schools, that this corporation has long really sought to exploit schools in order to market its brand. And just to kind of round that out there, its founding CEO, Ray Kroc, has this quote that we often show to people to, to show just how fundamental this has been as part of McDonald's strategy for so long where he said, we used to spot locations for a McDonald's store by taking our company airplane and uh, flying over a city and then finding where the schools were, and we'd fight around the schools. Now we use a helicopter, and it's ideal. And this is straight from the mouth of the founder of McDonald's, and it's so clear to see how marketing to children and exploiting schools really was so central to their marketing strategy from such an early time. Yeah, and I've seen the public health data that looks at the closer children live to one of these fast food restaurants or if they're if it's close to the school, the more likely the kids will eat there and the more likely they are to suffer with all of those metabolic disorders that come from eating a highly processed, high sodium, high fat diet. So we really do see the connection between the public health concerns and the help that you're trying to create in these communities. So McDonald's, I loved when you were talking earlier about how when they make a change, however, in their buying specifications, that that can have a tremendous ripple effect on our agricultural landscape. So for McDonald's, for example, to choose not to use antibiotics or for McDonald's to say, you know, we're not going to spray our potatoes with this particular pesticide or gosh, you know, my dream would be for them to start having certified organic food because of the ripple effects on our agricultural landscape. Can you give me some examples of where you've seen a shift? 
Oh, there's almost too many to count, but you're absolutely right. We like to say here that McDonald's says jump and suppliers are asking how high. Mm. And there's numerous instances to point to where a small change from McDonald's has sent ripple effects across the food system or where losing a McDonald's contract has actually conversely uh, had negative consequences for a corporation, going back to that motivation of, of why those supplier corporations are in the first place asking how high. And so some of the ways in which we've seen this, and, and just to point to certainly some successes of other campaigns who have been challenging McDonald's, you know, there was certainly the impact of the work of the Humane Society of the United States campaigning on improving conditions for the size of the gestation crates for pregnant sows, the, the pigs in McDonald's supply chain, as well as eliminating the battery cages for chickens, both of which in the last five or six years are ones that McDonald's has made movement on. And every time they've made movement on that, you'll see, you can go back and see that the timing of these presses, but usually within just a few months, you're starting to see some of the other major companies within the food system make almost the exact same announcement. Another example is, I believe now it was about two years ago, McDonald's made its announcement on the antibiotics in its chicken supply, so saying that it it was going to remove antibiotics, some antibiotics important to human medicine from its chicken supply. And I think within two days of that announcement, Costco made almost exactly the same announcement. And so you are truly seeing how McDonald's makes a small change in its supply, its ingredients in, in the supply chain. And really, the rest of the food industry comes in lockstep behind it that, that really speaks to the incredible power of this corporation and how uh, food is made. In many ways, whether or not we are eating at McDonald's, we're eating food created by the same system, to, to quote, I believe, Eric Schlosser there. Mm-hmm. We should probably talk a little more about the charitable contributions that McDonald's makes and the philanthropic efforts that the corporation has. So, for example, the Ronald McDonald House Charities. Do you want to talk about how McDonald's works with hospitals and works with families and sets up this idea that they're really helping people out and yet there's a cost? I'm so glad that you bring that one up as well. This was all revealed in a report that was authored by Michelle Simon of Eat Drink Politics. And this is just really the place to go to get the look behind the curtain of McDonald's philanthropic activities and really the truth behind them. So while for so many people, they might have the impression that the naming of it, that McDonald's is giving 100% of its support to the Ronald McDonald House Charities, it's actually not the case. And again, to this point, I'll point out that this is not 100% transparent either. And that was one of the calls in the report from Michelle Simon. But one of the really critical pieces here the report revealed is that, you know, really it's maybe about 20-25% of the charity's annual revenue that comes from McDonald's. 
And so while McDonald's is trying to take 100% of the credit for it, it's actually giving the charities very little money. And then at the end of the day, because the charities is essentially McDonald's charitable giving arm, taking in money from other corporations as well, like Coca-Cola and others, even less of that money is ultimately getting down to the houses who are doing the work and who are the ones who are providing incredibly noble work of supporting families, sick kids and their families when they need to get necessary medical care. But one of the really clear calls that we joined Michelle Simon and others in making in this report was that it really is time for McDonald's not to take undeserved credit for the incredibly good work of these charities and and really to do it as they would have said by their own admissions for 99% commercial reasons, which is to offset an image of selling cheap burgers, fries, and soda to the public. Mm-hmm. I want to just let our listeners know that they can learn all about this campaign and all of the other great work from Corporate Accountability International's website, which is simply stopcorporateabuse.org. Well, I want to give you a chance to talk about some of the work that you've done that you want to pull out, but I also want us to make sure that we have time to talk a little bit about the Toxic Tater campaign and your involvement there. Do you want to start with the Toxic Tater campaign? Yeah, why don't we start there? We've long known about the incredible and harmful impacts of McDonald's practices across the food system. We have the fortunate connection to make with the incredible Toxic Taters campaign of folks working in rural Minnesota as well as in solidarity with the White Earth Indian Reservation there who were seeing firsthand the impacts of pesticide use by one of McDonald's key suppliers in the region, RDO, and we had connected to them through some allies in the past, but really over the past few months, first leading up to the shareholders meeting and then again during their week of action, the first week of October, really saw this as a critical call. I mean, we we have for so many years really worked with parents and health professionals who've been concerned about McDonald's impact on health, primarily through much of what I was mentioning earlier, the impact of its marketing to children, the negative health impact of its food products that are processed and high in fat, salt, and sugar. And this was a critical moment for us to make that connection, too, to how pesticide spraying in its supply chain was really, and particularly on its potatoes, was negatively impacting the health of rural communities. And and particularly, just to give a shout out to the Pesticide Action Network, Kids on the Frontline Report, which is an incredible resource, really to the health of children in these communities across the country. And I think for us, There was just such a critical coming together of issues here, particularly in the light of how we had been working on ending McDonald's marketing in schools through McTeachers Nights with allies like the fantastic campaign for a commercial-free childhood. And we just saw this as a critical opportunity to bring together the messages of these movements and mothers and families from farm to fork to point out how McDonald's practices from its marketing to its pesticide practices and really its failure to come through on a 2009 pledge that it made to cut pesticide use in its 
supply chain were fundamentally interconnected struggles. Well, we'll have to end our conversation there. I want to thank you so much, Sri Ram, for being my guest. We have been speaking with Sri Ram Madhusudanam, and he is the Director of Corporate Accountability International's Value the Meal campaign. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. You can learn more about the Value the Meal campaign and all of the valuable projects and campaigns from Corporate Accountability International's StopCorporateAbuse.org. Thank you, Sriram. Thank you. Thank you.